As the years went on, he would see Tony less and less. But every single time he'd see Tony, Tony would ask him to rate his happiness from one to 10. It's a very technical approach to a very esoteric question. Tony saw happiness as a code and an algorithm to crack. And that is very typical of a tech CEO, right? They're known for optimizing everything and making everything efficient. But when it's something like happiness, which is you know, innate in our human condition, that's something that maybe a code just can't solve for. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia, where it is a great day to be alive. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about life, death, and money through the lens of Tony Shea, the former CEO of Zappos, who died late last month after a tragic downward spiral into substance abuse and madness, really. I speak today with the Forbes reporters who broke the story behind the circumstances of Tony's death. Their names are Angel Al Young and David Jeans. They join me from San Francisco and Brooklyn, respectively. This is a hard topic to discuss because while I don't want to be tawdry and engage in disrespectful recount of Tony's descent into substance abuse and really madness, but I think the topics are important to explore and they relate very closely to themes we visit on Crazy Money all the time. The fact that money isn't the only thing in your life that matters, the fact that just because you made a lot of money doesn't necessarily mean you've got life figured out. In Tony's last year, he did things like he bought 50 plus million dollars of real estate in Park City, Utah, and he invited his friends, some would say friends, some would say hangers-on, some would say yes-men, to move to Park City, and he would pay them twice as much as the most amount of money they ever made to come to Park City and hang out with him. And hanging out with him, it appears, meant 24-7 descent into Bacchanalia, where they were drinking, they were doing mushrooms and ecstasy, and they were taking nitrous oxide constantly. You might know them as whippets if you spent any time on college campuses in the last few decades. And really just engaged in, you know, what sounds like it would be really fun. You know, it sounds like New Year's Eve in Ibiza, but 24-7, every day. Just a really tragic, tragic example of how having no guardrails on your life can really lead you in the wrong direction. We're joined after I speak to Angel and David by Dr. Drew Pinsky. He returns to the show and offers some insights into the connection between wealth and addiction. Some very interesting insights that are worth you sticking around. So I invite you to do so. I had another interview ready to go for this week, but I found out about this story and I felt it was something we really needed to explore. And the way I found out about it was I posted an article to the Crazy Money Listeners Facebook group. And if you're not a member of that, I invite you to join. Go to Facebook, search Crazy Money Listeners, then ask to join the group. And guess what? You'll get in. This ain't Harvard, people. It's the Crazy Money Listeners group. Go check it out. So I posted this article to the Crazy Money Facebook group and my Rhodes College friend, my fellow friend from Rhodes College, go links, Susan Shackelford Arnold. Hello, Susan. Hello, Alan. Hope you guys are great. She posted the article written by David and Angel, and I didn't have any idea that when I posted the original article, which is just the news of his death, I was like, hey, you know, doesn't matter how much money you have, life is short, you know, enjoy the ride. And then I read their article, I'm like, okay, enjoy the ride, but don't enjoy it this much, good God. I really found it compelling, and as sad as it is, we want to strike the balance here between being respectful and learning from Tony's tragic demise. And I also want to remind everybody, and I think David and Angel were highly aware of this, is that Tony was an extraordinary guy. He really did have 
a revolutionary way to look at management, and he did use his money for a lot of good while he was alive. The revitalization of downtown Las Vegas, and he did a lot of other good things. And the guy, by all accounts, had a really good heart. He just had other problems that got in the way. Okay, let's talk about my guests, Angel Ao Young and David Jeans. They wrote the Forbes cover story, Tony Shea's American Tragedy, which details both Tony's extraordinary accomplishments and his tragic demise. Angel writes about billionaires at Forbes. David Jeans, also a Forbes staff reporter, covers the technology industry. His work appears regularly in the New York Times. Later in the show, we'll be joined by Dr. Drew Pinsky, who is, as you know, an internist, addiction specialist, and popular broadcaster. Here, folks, are... Angel Al Young and David Jeans. Angel Al Young and David Jeans, welcome to Crazy Money. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Paul. Angel, who was Tony Shea? Tony Shea was a complicated figure, as we know now. But I think what people knew of him before this year was really being a tech visionary. He's been in the tech industry for decades, and he really made his first break in his early 20s when he founded his first company, Link Exchange which was a digital advertising company that he sold for over $250 million. Then he started his own venture capital firm with a friend, Alfred Lin, and that's how he sort of found his way to Zappos. He first invested in the company and then became CEO. And it was at Zappos where he really made a name for himself in the tech world. He grew the company. He became known for out-of-the-box thinking and eventually sold it to Amazon for $1.2 billion in 2009. But he stayed on a CEO, continued growing the company. Besides from Jeff Bezos, Tony Shea was probably the other figure that really sort of cemented the online retail space. And he had a policy of trusting the customer completely with a really free return policy, which was kind of unheard of before Tony Shea made it the norm. That was who he was before this year. David, you cover the tech industry. How does Tony stand out among other CEOs who have built successful companies in the Valley? So like many tech CEOs, Tony sort of liked to, you know, espouse visions of making the world a better place and generating happiness and, you know, really changing corporate culture. But the big difference between Tony and, you know, the majority of tech CEOs is that he actually put his money where his mouth was and made changes. Some of them worked and some of them didn't, but at Zappos, that was very clear. You know, one of the big things he did at Zappos, he asked all of his employees to submit what they thought the company was, what it should stand for and what its values were. And after getting feedback, he launched this whole corporate structure where people were valued by their personality rather than the the position that they held. Then he also, you know, went on to create this thing called Holacracy and other kind of ways of managing your business. Uh, which didn't always work. Holacracy was like a place where there was actually no positions at all. No org structure hardly, right? Right. Like the hierarchy wasn't there like it was in a typical business. But still, I mean, this was all in the name of like trying to better work culture and better make people want to work and do well and be happy. So this kind of approach obviously generated a lot of attention. And Tony was always rubbing shoulders with business leaders former presidents, celebrities, everyone wanted to understand what his mantra was in life. And I don't think you really see that in a lot of tech CEOs because most of the tech CEOs who we sort of see rise and lead massive companies and have some eccentric personalities, typically we paint them as a more complicated figure. Angel, you want to jump in? Yeah. I mean, there's just one thing that I think does set Tony Shea apart from other tech CEOs is that 
At Zappos, they never talked about work-life balance. They talked about work-life integration. Tony Shea was very much about blending the lines between work and life. He wanted to make the employees as happy as possible. He wanted the employees to have fun at work. And he made a lot of initiatives. One of the biggest initiatives really towards this goal was moving Zappos from the Bay Area to Las Vegas. He first moved it to Henderson and then Las Vegas. But we know what Las Vegas is like. It's kind of like Disneyland for adults. And the fact that Zappos became headquartered there, that sort of played into Tony's ethos of mixing work and play. And, you know, Tony never tried to hide that he could be a tech leader while still being able to have fun. He was well known for taking job interviews with candidates and offering them alcohol during the interviews. And (laughs) that's who Tony was, you know, and you can argue that there's nothing wrong with that. You know, he's just a person that wants to connect with people in that kind of way. And he never tried to hide it. And I do think that also sets him apart from other tech CEOs. People might criticize his personal quirks and non-traditional management ethos, but he, along with his colleagues there, built a very successful business that sold for a lot of money. Yeah. And I think it was this deal with Amazon in 2009 this 1.2 billion massive deal that sort of, in a way, gave him a clear way to do whatever he wanted. Amazon also gave Tony sort of free reign at Zappos. And because he was given free reign, he was able to experiment with holacracy, as David mentioned earlier, all these things that normal corporations wouldn't even think about trying to implement. Tony was able to because he had a very long leash with Amazon, And I do think that, you know, this deal that happened so early on in his career, it really changed the trajectory of Tony's life in a lot of ways. But Tony was never about the money. I mean, I read that he walked out on his earnout after Link Exchange and that he would put money of his own back into the business to try to fund it without really worrying whether or not it would be paid back. So the exit with Amazon wasn't really about cashing out. No, it wasn't about cashing out. I don't think the actual dollar amount really mattered to Tony. But what I think it did was, I think it did give Tony free reign to do whatever he wanted. And in a way, I think when you experience that much money at such an early age, it's possible that it might stunt your growth because Mm. you don't really have to work hard for anything anymore. And you don't really have to go through the normal hardships that people have to go through when, you know, they buy their first house and they have to pay off a mortgage or they get married and have kids. And I think experiencing that much money early on at a young age, when Tony's mindset was very much still in, you know, the party mode, it just stayed there because he had that much money and it sort of perpetuated that lifestyle that he was living, if that makes any sense. Sure. David, how much money are we talking about in this post-Amazon life? How did he start putting that to use? Well, after Amazon acquired Zappos in 2009, Tony was definitely an emerging figure in Las Vegas, especially in the political scene and the community scene. And downtown Las Vegas was largely a pretty sort of seedy enclave. You know, it wasn't really the most desired neighborhood in the city. And Tony had spoken with some people who were living in that neighborhood and saw the potential maybe to create a little bit of a slice of Silicon Valley there. And to do that, he realized, you know, he was probably one of the richest, if not the richest people on the block. He realized that he could have huge staying power in trying to create his vision. And that led to him effectively paying 
businesses and encouraging entrepreneurs and thinkers and technologists and creatives and artists to come and join him in this neighborhood. And basically, he would back their businesses. He would back their startups. He would back their projects. Therefore, over the next few years, he would transfer on this one seedy neighborhood into a thriving business district that where everyone's like wildest dreams and ideas could be fulfilled. By the time it got to about 2012, they really formalized this whole project and it was called the Downtown Project and it had more of a structure. And so while he still helmed Zappos, he was also leading this entire business district and continuing to seed fund a lot of the businesses that were coming in there. That also, with his deployment of money like that, it also put him at the center of the universe of this community. And I think that that probably diversified how he split his attention, how he was able to manage all of these different obligations. I think that the other thing that was also a common theme was in 2010, he wrote his book, Delivering Happiness. And basically, it was an open source template for how he could potentially deliver happiness in like a mathematical data based statistical way. And he tried to, again, espouse that across this community and across the world with the launch of the book. But according to a number of the people who he spoke to for you know our stories, he seemed to be always trying to crack the code of happiness, but, but he never seemed to quite get there. People saw cracks in maybe his, his mental health along the way. And even though he was also trying to stay grounded. Angel, you mentioned that he might give alcohol to a job interviewee. Okay, that's maybe a warning sign. But when did things take a decided turn south for Tony? Well, I just want to add to one thing that David was talking about in terms of cracking the code on happiness. Yeah, I mean, Tony made it his life's work to deliver happiness, but also understand happiness. But the way that he approached it was abnormal. We have the Zappos founder, Nick Swinmurn, he wrote a letter to Tony after he passed away. And in this letter, he talked about how as the years went on, he would see Tony less and less. But every single time he'd see Tony, Tony would ask him to rate his happiness from one to 10. And, you know, Nick was generally a happy guy. So he'd say, you know, I'm pretty happy. And Tony would always be surprised that he was happy because Nick was married. <laughs> Yeah. And he said, that's at odds um, with the majority of people that I survey, you know, married people aren't supposed to be happy, but even like, if you think about that, you know, he's serving people about their happiness and asking people to happiness, which is. Why do you think he did that? Was he trying to figure it out for himself? Cause he couldn't figure out how to be happy. I mean, maybe we might never know, but I think that approach, it's a very technical approach to a very esoteric question. And I think there's something that Tony saw happiness as a code and an algorithm to crack. And that is very typical of a tech CEO, right? Tech Mm -hmm. CEOs, they're known for optimizing everything and making everything efficient. But when it's something like happiness, which is, you know, innate in our human condition, that's something that maybe a code just can't solve for. Right. And I think that was one of the things that really stuck out during the reporting process for me at least, when we were exploring this whole question of delivering happiness and how it ended up. How do you think he defined happiness? I mean, I think at some point he started defining happiness with exactly what he built with Downtown Project, Mm -hmm. actually, which is, you know, a large community full of people 
people connecting, brainstorming, partying. I think that's what he defined as happiness. But, you know, as you get older, his peers, they all started partying less and they got married and they had kids. It happens. It happens. It happens. Right. It happens. And he started losing touch with people who were closer to him in age. And so his friends kept getting younger and younger. If we're using that definition of happiness, then COVID-19 sort of ruined that definition, right? It canceled large gatherings. It canceled large parties. It canceled large music festivals. All these things that, you know, Tony was known for attending and facilitating and being a part of. And I think like with COVID-19, that really sort of, it really questioned his definition of happiness. Well, maybe David, you could share your thoughts on that matter and weave into what he was trying to build in Park City. So I think it's clear, as Angel mentioned, for people like us who would typically follow the general life path of, you know, meet a partner, start a family, grow old and sort of settle down and and leave the partying days and the fun of your early 20s behind in a way, Tony seemed to always be latching onto that. And again, as Angel mentioned, he did tell colleagues that his friends were getting younger and he was totally happy with that. And it appeared (laughs) to, to those who were watching him that he was really just still clinging to that adrenaline and sense of wonderment that comes with being young. Many have described him as a very rich Peter Pan, and we also mentioned that in our story. But by the time we got to the start of this year, it did appear to a lot of his old friends that he was becoming distant, that he was hanging out with a new group of people who they were not familiar with, and that they were younger and also seemed like the influencer type. They were definitely a different crowd that he had been spending time with over the years. And he bought $56 million worth of real estate in Park City, reportedly, and offered these friends up to 2x their highest previous salary to come to Park City, hang out, and, quote, be happy with him. In your most recent story, you call it a hedonistic enclave that he was building in Park City. This is kind of bizarre, what he's constructing here. I'm not sure that he probably went to Park City with the idea to create a hedonistic enclave. I mean, you know, we also state in the story from this morning that did go there to be like, okay, I've got to go there, reset, I've got to detox, I have to get fit, I have to try and just like find my grounding again. But what happened, this community that he had in Vegas, this ever-charging party atmosphere just eventually followed him there and all of his perhaps good intentions that he had in being in Park City to take a slice from what he created in Vegas and bring it to Park City and have another go at it, it just devolved into something a bit more sinister. And that was because some of the worst aspects of the community that he had created in Vegas appeared to be just amplified in this community that he had built in Park City. And a big reason, most of those people were on his payroll. And as Jewel very succinctly put it in her letter to him. Jewel the singer. Jewel the singer I'm I'm talking about. She said that she wrote in a letter to Tony that he was in trouble. I mean, that is a really scary thing to be surrounded by people who are only on your payroll. I mean, this is the stuff of, unfortunately, the legend of what we have told of previous figures in decades past, you know. After our story came out, there was a lot of talk of, People like Howard Hughes and others like Mm. that, very complicated, very successful, very eccentric, very powerful people who just couldn't find what they were looking for. 
So the guy who had always been, quote, a heavy drinker was now regularly partaking, and by regularly, we don't know if it was every day or just pretty often, mushrooms, ecstasy, DMT, ketamine, and nitrous oxide, which reportedly he was doing nitrous, otherwise known as whippets, which is a dissociative drug like laughing gas at the dentist's office. He's doing that at lunch, reportedly, with the mayor of Park City, and nitrous isn't exactly something you pair with a burger the way you would pair wine with fish. I mean, this was heavy-duty, extreme behavior. Yeah. And again, I don't think either of us want to be armchair psychologists here, but I think it's worthy to note that the majority of these drugs are dissociatives. It allows you to dissociate with reality. I guess my point in bringing all that up and the point of having you all on to tell this story about your reporting is that there's so many people believe, hey, I'll be happy if only I achieve this much money. Or when I make this much money, I'm going to quit my job and go live in the country and life will be good. But that's not really how it works out. You know, you try to build a utopian society. It isn't the kind of healthy environment that each of us need. Each of us needs struggle every day to keep our minds occupied and to keep moving forward and growing as human beings. And it looks like, David, as you mentioned, he kind of was stuck in his early 20s. And we don't want to be armchair psychologists, but his money enabled him to live whichever way he wanted to. And the ways that he chose ended up being very unhealthy and very arguably killed him. Why was he in Connecticut and what happened to him there? There aren't a lot of details that are out there as to why he was in Connecticut. What we do know is that he was at a house that he purchased and the house was under the name Rachel Brown. And there are reports that she was his girlfriend and the house was under her name. There were several people living in the house at the time and the fire broke out a little over a week before Thanksgiving. And the fire broke out in the middle of the night around 3, 3.30. And firefighters and first responders came to the house. They came and got Tony and Tony went to the hospital and he was in the hospital for about a little over a week before he passed. When I saw the article that you all wrote, it was great reporting, by the way. So congratulations on writing a very good story about a very tragic thing. I just was overwhelmed with sadness for the guy who had everything and you know still struggled to find that happiness that he was so good at delivering in his company, but couldn't find it in his personal life, presumably. Angel, you write extensively about billionaires. Has learning about them as people demystified wealth to you? In a way, I think it's also desensitized me to extreme wealth because, you know, my team were dealing with figures that have six, seven, eight zeros behind them. I don't know if it's demystified, but it's definitely desensitized me to grand wealth. And yeah, I report on billionaires and I've met a good amount of them. And honestly, the majority of them are just regular people. They're not really that different from us. I would say Tony is probably different from us, but the majority of billionaires, based on my experience with them, are pretty normal. What are the aspects of a personality that gives somebody what it takes to become a billionaire? I get asked this question so often, and I'm always stumped as to how to answer them. Because, let me think about this one. What makes them different? While you think about this, I'm going to go to David. David, what's the line between Silicon Valley guys, and it's mostly guys, I think, who take ice baths every morning and do intermittent fasting, and someone who takes everything too far? 
I'd start by saying that the thing about Tony is that he just defies all of those boxes. Because I was initially going to answer your question and say, look, there is a lot of literature and conversation out there about the fact that you could put someone like uh, Adam Newman, who led WeWork, who largely led by telling people how he was going to do things and sort of dictating. And his eccentricity sort of came into his narrative. But, you know, you can only just look at like what WeWork ended up being as a result of, you know, people not stopping his daily whims. And then, you know, we've seen just yesterday the Airbnb CEO, Brian Chesky, sort of barely being able to compute the fact that his company is now worth $100 billion. And he's widely been seen as someone who listens to those who surround him but also makes decisions and evidently attempts to his best to lead a, a company with compassion. And you can sort of contrast those two personalities. The thing about Tony is along the way he seemed to take aspects of both of those kind of personalities. He was definitely eccentric, definitely did things differently, but he also listened to those around him and made decisions sometimes based on that. And perhaps the most succinct way to position Tony in this spectrum of tech leaders is the fact that he was the kind of guy who could play 20D chess. And while you thought he wasn't listening, he was always absorbing, always analyzing and always collecting the data to make good decisions rebounding them off other people, whether it was the person he just met at the bar or on the street, or if it was his CEO of 20 years, he listened, processed and made decisions. And that is why we are so fascinated and saddened by Tony's loss, because he just defied every sort of norm that people would try to put him in. Do you think he was a genius? That is definitely the feedback that we have been provided by all of those who surrounded him for the last few decades. Angel, do I have to be a genius to be a billionaire or does genius get in the way of financial success? I think there are some people who are just lucky and lucky in the sense of you were born in the right family and able to get into the right schools and got the right jobs and knew the right people and rose up through the ranks. Come on, just in fairness, that's how you get to Harvard Law School. That's not how you find a company like like Zappos or... Yeah. And then there's like the other kinds of billionaires, right? The really bootstrapped billionaires who have been very ambitious since day one, have had to make hard and tough decisions, have had to push people around and push people out and be somewhat of a ruthless person to get to the top. And those are the fascinating characters. I would say that there are less self-made billionaires than billionaires who sort of had a silver spoon in their mouth their entire lives. Those are very far and in between. Well, the original question before I went back to David was, what does it take to be a billionaire? I thought, do I have to be a genius to be a billionaire? It's kind of a more specific angle that you could kind of grab onto. I mean, you definitely have to be intelligent, but I would argue that you don't have to be a total genius to be a billionaire. I actually think there are a lot of geniuses who choose to not go the corporate route and choose to not be a billionaire. They choose to use their skills In research, in government, I think it would be wrong to just equate, if you're a billionaire, then you're automatically a genius. Fair enough. I do want to add that I think that it's important that the legacy that Tony leaves behind is preserved in its colors and its different shades. And his impact on the business world, his arguable impact on humanity even, you know, that is definitely something that Angel and I tried our best to make sure was a feature of our reporting. Now we are seeing mourning and grief over 
his passing and we're seeing Las Vegas try to understand what kind of a hole he has left in that city where he has played a huge role in, in revitalizing. What is the future now of all the projects that he started? What does a Zappos look like without Tony Shea at the helm? These are all questions that we're going to try and answer in the coming months and maybe even years. But it is worth noting that Tony's passing was something that prompted an outpouring of grief, sort of not matched in the business world since that of Steve Jobs. And I just think that that is a very crucial part that we want to make sure remains a big part of our reporting. Understandable. Let me ask you each, you're young, maybe you come from a lot of money, maybe you don't, but how would your life change if you won the lottery and became worth $100 million next week? I would pay off all of my student loans. <laughs> okay, there's your first 50000 Now you have $99,950,000 <laughs> left. How does your life change, Angel? Mm-hmm. Can you handle it? Do you think you'd know what to do with your life if you had $100 million less your student loans? I mean, at this point, yes. And I think actually my reporting on, you know, the 0.0001% actually does help with that. Because through that, I've understood how you're supposed to handle money. And I understood that by looking at the successes and also the failures. I mean, one successful way, I guess, to manage money would probably invest in the stock market. And a bad way to invest the money would probably be investing in the restaurant industry. So in terms of like, investing and making sure that money is well taken care of. From that standpoint, I think my reporting has helped. But I've had billionaires that tell me, I really don't know what to do with all this money. Mm. And so when you get to that point, then what else can you do than just give it away? That's one thing that I don't quite understand why billionaires don't do more of. Why don't you just give away more of your money if you have so much of this money that you don't even know what to spend it on? You know, Larry Ellison has said, I worked very hard to spend as much money as I possibly could, and I just can't. So if that's the case, I just, <laughs> why don't you just give it away? Yeah. Um, well, so much of it is tied up into it as operation, you know? Yeah, a lot of it is tied up in stocks. But I mean, if you really wanted to, I think you could. Oh, I'm sure you I could. Think that's a, I think that's a bad excuse. Right. I think it's a bad excuse to say that, you know, your net worth is not liquid and it's tied up in stocks. I think if you wanted to give it away, you could. David, if you won $100 million, would you keep working? Yes. The simple answer is yes. The one thing I would say is I grew up in Australia, very middle-class family. My mom was a teacher and dad was a builder, two siblings. And I grew up very happy. I had a very good upbringing. I had good friends. I had a great life as a child. And I think if I came into any wealth like that, I quite literally had this conversation two days ago with someone that if I came into fortune, it would probably be a life-altering event that I don't know if I could handle. I've found happiness before in life, and I would like to stick to what I know. I mean, sure, it would be nice to own yachts and boats and stuff, but God, I would be so scared that I would lose part of myself as a person in that kind of wealth that I would have to work out how to either make sure that my life doesn't change in a big way or (laughs) give it back. I don't know. I think like the more money you have the more problems you attract. Mm. Um, And when I say problems, I mean like you might even attract problematic people that come into your orbit. So yeah, more money, more problems. That's a good place to leave it. Angel Al Young and David Jeans, thank you for your reporting. And I can't wait to see what's next from both of you. 
Thanks, Paul. I really appreciate David and Angel making time for us this week. This article has gotten a lot of attention and they've been very busy with follow-up articles and other interviews as well. So thank you, David and Angel. I thought it would be really interesting to get another take on the connection between wealth and addiction. Dr. Drew Pinsky, whom you all know is an internist addiction specialist and popular broadcaster, made a few minutes to join us again. So here's Dr. Drew. Hey, Dr. Drew, thanks for making time to join us today. You bet. What goes through your mind when you read about yet another super successful person suffering from addiction like Tony Shea did? No surprise. I think I've shared this with you before that when I first started working in a freestanding large psychiatric hospital that had been around for about 100 years, the first thing I noticed was that the very rich and the very poor had much more in common with one another than with the rest of us. (laughs) Lots of bipolar disorder, lots of thought disturbances, lots of substance. This is not a casual observation. This is categorical. And I think part of it comes from the fact that hypomania is a great way to engage in business. And so most really successful business people have some degree of hypomania. They sleep four hours a night. They do three things at once. They're distractible. They're, you know, sometimes grandiose and irritable and that kind of stuff, too, later on. But what makes them able to outcompete everybody else is that hypomania. And a certain percentage of them flip into full mania. Now, if you also have addiction, which is a very common illness, and again, a little more common in the very successful and the very poor, then you start adding in stimulants and nitrous and all the stuff he was doing, and now you got mania. Now you flip into mania, and now it's a dangerous situation. Why is it the very rich and the very poor? Do the middle class just... Like I said, the very rich, it's the drive, right? The the not sleeping and the drive and the single-mindedness and the out-competing everybody else. But by the same token, if that's not backed up with skill and education, it ends up just being grandiosity and failures and thinking you're no more than everybody else and making lots of mistakes and disrupting your relationships and, you know, losing jobs and ending up, you know, then you add drugs, now you end up on the streets. Whether you've lost your job due to the economy, you're unemployed, or you're just too rich to never have to work again, you still don't have the guardrails of a job to keep you away from your worst tendencies. Right. Well, that's another feature, right? Which is that this is more on the addiction side than on the bipolar side, because people can kind of hide their bipolar illness for one period of time. But, But addiction sort of becomes evident to people pretty quickly. I mean, the addicts think they're hiding it from their loved ones, from their coworkers, and of course, everyone knows long before the addict comes clean about it. And when you have a job, somebody pulls you aside and says, hey, it turns out, especially for men, the most significant motivator of treatment is the boss. If the boss says, get treatment or you're going to lose your job, men go into treatment. Women who are very career-driven sometimes respond to that, but not as predictably as men do. And that's the guardrail. You're right. If you have consequences, you're living in a world with other people where they observe the dysfunction and they go, no, either leave or you're going to get it together. And it's the same thing, like you mentioned, with so much money that you don't have consequences, but the same thing applies to celebrity, right? Celebrity insulates themselves from the world by a group of sycophants who don't confront the individual with their behavior. And anyone who tries to get at them with a consequence or with a suggestion is excommunicated from the inner circle. And so the diseases in the very rich and the celebrities, particularly addiction and mania, can spiral to a much more serious place without the usual guardrails, as you put it, Paul, uh, sort of pulling them back in and getting them treated and uh, getting things, you know, getting back to health. 
You talk about the sycophants and the enablers, you know, living in a ski resort and hanging out with my best friends, doing nothing but skiing and drinking and having good meals sounds like a great way to live. Why does that not actually result in the happiness that it sounds like it might produce? It can. It doesn't have to not do that. But if you are using drugs, then it will progress. You know, addiction is a progressive illness. This is a thing that people don't seem to get into their head not a static illness. It progresses and it ends in death, period. Death by many, many, many means. Suicide, accidents, you know, some sort of cardiac, I mean, strokes, a million different ways addiction ends in death, but it progresses and it ends in death if it doesn't get off court or it ends in jail or institutionalization if you're lucky or someone pulls you into treatment before all that happens. But when you're insulated from that and usually, you know, if you're... (laughs) Partying in Tahoe, guess who you're partying with? You're partying with other users, other addicts, other alcoholics, and you're just using buddies. These aren't real relationships. These are just using buddies. What makes someone tend toward a cocktail of ecstasy, mushrooms, DMT, and nitrous oxide as opposed to more pedestrian drugs like marijuana? I don't know that I can give you a, you know, why people have a drug of choice is sort of a mysterious phenomenon. I can tell you that bipolar types tend to go down this kind of path. Uh, if you remember old Steve-O, when we got him treated, he was going to ride a motorcycle off a building on nitrous and oh was doing God. hallucinogens and was super manic and took him about a year to come down from his mania. When he finally got serious about his recovery, he's been a, you know deeply into his recovery ever since and is now this amazing person. So this is why I do this work. We talked about guardrails of work. You know, Tony was described, he was 46 and still single and described as the super rich Peter Pan hanging out with people 20 years younger than he is. Do the guardrails of family life, marriage, and parenthood help people stay the course? Of course. I mean, the families are the ones that'll, family and coworkers. I mean, who do we bring into an intervention, right? We bring in the family, we bring in the employer, we bring in the coworkers. And I like to have a sheriff standing by. To give another layer of consequence. And people go, oh, he's just calling himself a sex addict because he got caught, or he's just saying he's an alcoholic because he got caught. Yeah, nobody with any kind of addiction ever stops until they get caught. It's the consequence that wakes them up, and it's the consequences that bring them to treatment. And an intervention is just sort of an artificial way of bringing a lot of consequences to bear. Yeah, hopefully they get caught. Right, that's the lucky one. This is why I'm gravely concerned about the way California, particularly L.A. County, is going, where there's no legal consequences from any drug use or drug trafficking. That helped people. It helped people not die. And that guardrail is now up. So the Danish or the Dutch model of legalizing everything and hoping that people, it demystifies drugs, that's, that's a fool's errand? Wherever that happens, it ends up in massive addict death, wherever they've tried that. Lisbon, Amsterdam just massive, horrible consequences for the people with addiction. Wow. Well, Dr. Drew, thank you for taking time to join us today. I really appreciate it. You got it. Talk soon. Thank you so much to Angel Ao Young and David Jeans from Forbes for joining us earlier in the podcast. See a link to their cover story, Tony Shea's American Tragedy, in the show notes. Thanks also to Dr. Drew for joining us once again and reminding us, folks, that wealth does not immunize you against addiction or other mental disorders check on yourself, check on your friends and family. Let's get to takeaways. Number one, money is only one part of life. Just because someone hit a grand slam in the financial arena does not mean they have it all figured out. And this applies to you and it applies to others around you. So spare yourself the comparison to people who appear to be doing better than you are. 
it may be true in one aspect of life, but you don't get to pick and choose. If you want to be a person, you got to be the whole person. And I tell you what, I'd rather be somebody with no money than to have to deal with the addiction that Tony Shea had to deal with. So don't compare, just don't do it. All right. Number two, we need to work. We need to struggle beyond ourselves. We need to engage with the world lest we fall prey to our own weakest inclinations. And we all have some weak inclinations. They manifest differently for each of us, but we have them. I know what mine are. You know what yours are. So let's try not to judge and recognize that work not only provides us with a paycheck and a sense of accomplishment and a network of friends to spend our time with, it also creates some very useful guardrails in our life that are actually much healthier than not working. Lastly, and along those lines, life is complicated. You know, none of us is all good or all bad. Some of us do more good things than others. Some of us do more bad things than others. Tony did a lot of incredible things while he was alive. He was an inspiration to millions of people. He used his money, his extraordinary wealth, to make life better for a lot of people. He led the revitalization of downtown Las Vegas and he wasn't in it for the money, not that project, but I just mean overall, he didn't seem to be in it for the money. So while he suffered severely from addiction and ended up paying the ultimate price as did his family in losing him, the guy had more to him than the headlines in his obituary. Okay, so that's three. Money is only one part of life. Two, we need to work. Three, lastly, life is complicated. I'm going to add a fourth this week because I forgot to write it in earlier and I forgot to mention it in the introduction, but Tony Shea died without a will. Ladies and gentlemen, if you don't have a will, if you don't have a living will, if you haven't spoken to your children, if you have adult children about your estate, grow the hell up and do it today. Get a lawyer, set yourself up with a will, a living will, And make sure you've done your children the vast courtesy of speaking to them about your estate, about your values, about your wishes, and about your dreams as to what should happen with your estate after you're gone. You might die in 50 years. You might die tomorrow. And unless you want the government to get all your money, which I don't think any of us does, certainly it could help other people in some way, but I'm guessing most of us have a better idea as to what we would like to have happen to our estates, either to give it to charities or how we would like to pass it on to our children. So man up, woman up, and go get your estate in order. That is all. Thanks for joining. Thanks for staying all the way to the end. Got another great episode coming up next week. By all means, if you like what we're doing here in Crazy Money, not only subscribe and or follow, depending upon the app you're listening to us on, please do write us a nice review and share this episode with three friends. I greatly appreciate it. Have a great week. Mike Carano, make me sound smart.